I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. I am Dr. Aaron Eugene McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm James Goodlatte. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Rogan, MD. Je m'appelle Rick Safries, et c'est le podcast du gynécologue holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome back, everybody. It's the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Riley. I'm an MD. I'm a fellow of ACOG. I'm also trained in hospice and palliative medicine. Those boards are coming around the corner for me. So that's the second board specialty. I'm also working on a board specialty in anthroposophic medicine, just continuing to learn and grow. And this podcast is kind of my home base where I get to engage in far more comprehensive conversations around everything I did, but also didn't learn (laughs) in my 14 years of education and training. It just keeps getting better, keeps getting better for me. I am so grateful to be able to introduce you to a relatively new, but very quickly dear friend who is a birth keeper herself. She also trains midwives or an alternate term that she has come to is birth keeper and wisdom keeper, because she, like me, doesn't resonate with this notion that a midwife now is something that is sort of ordained by the state. And with the ordainment process and this licensure program, there are strict regulations as to what a midwife can do, really to what any birth keeper can do, but especially midwives. So let's not use the term. Let's call them birth keepers. Well, Pio Barlett is my guest today. And I have been following her work for at least 15 years. And when I reached out to her, she was very, very graciously open to coming on the show. And we have just had a beautiful friendship that has unfolded since then. When we first got on the phone, we talked for about 90 minutes, like sight unseen, let's just be friends kind of thing. And she told me the story about having gotten sick over the pandemic with COVID, according to the nasal swab, and how she actually got so sick that she could feel herself dissolving. She was facing death. It was on the doorstep. And then something brought her back in to her body. She recovered and onward. Here she is doing her thing still. If you want to know more about her, search on Instagram. Go to wapio underscore and underscore the matrona, M-A-T-R-O-N-A. And you will you will get a the full experience of what the matrona Wapio brings to the table. So, like many very conscious, compassionate birth keepers in the world, you've already heard from Lindsay Milas, you know, my friend Marin Green, and my friend Sarah Rosser. We are just as willing to talk about death as we are in talking about birth. And sometimes these two things overlap in the most beautiful ways. So We're going to get into that in this episode. We get into what does it mean to be a wisdom keeper? What did midwives, you know, women caring for women, what does that really mean? And how, if you're out there wondering how to get a good education, how can you achieve the educational standards, meet those standards while maintaining 
the heterogeneity of what it means to be a person attending to birth. You're going to love this episode. And if you resonate with it, I encourage you to share it. Share it on your social media platforms. You know, a lot of people have podcasts out there and they fail early on because people don't share what they're loving about the show. And that's the easiest way you can support the show. You can also leave a five-star review. If you haven't done it, it takes 15 seconds. Just go on your smartphone device, go to either iTunes or Spotify, bam, five-star review. You wouldn't believe how important it is. And in my show, I have a lot of people who are very, very confronted by some of these conversations, bringing the word death into conversation that in their mind should be just about birth. It's very confronting. So they go and leave a one-star review. And, you know, they take some thread of the conversation, like my approach to doing C-section and, and having other tools and recommendations for surgeons doing C-sections such that, you know, your patient doesn't need opioids or other strong narcotics after birth. That is sometimes heard as misogynistic. So they go and leave a one-star review. That really, really hurts me. It hurts the show. I don't take it too personally because I realize I'm trying to hold the mirror up for people to look at some of these issues, whether you're in healthcare or you're a person seeking healthcare. So if you like the show, please go and leave a five-star review. Share these episodes with the people that you love. And please consider supporting the sponsors. Without my sponsors, I really can't do this. So who's sponsoring this episode, Doc? The first, which certainly doesn't need much introduction, is Full Well Fertility. Ayla Barmer and her team at Fullwell. Ayla's a registered nutritionist, and she was just like me, a little bit unenthusiastic about recommending prenatal vitamins, despite going through birth herself, despite being so versed in the nutritional world. And of course, a prenatal vitamin is not a replacement to a healthy lifestyle. But given how nutrient deplete our soils are and the food that grows out of those soils, and the cows and chickens and goats and everything that are feeding on the grass growing in this soil, it is a nice insurance policy to have the highest quality prenatal vitamin on the market. So it's without reservation that I suggest everybody from preconception all the way through postpartum. And heck, this is a great daily multivitamin. Go to fullwellfertility.com, use code BELOVED10. You can save 10% on the best prenatal vitamin on the market. You don't need to take my word for it. Compare the label of this to the label of any other prenatal vitamin anywhere on the planet, and you're going to get so much more nutrition in the full well formulation than you will anywhere else. I had a guest, Lily Nichols, on the podcast not too long ago, and she wrote two books, Real Food for Pregnancy, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. We spoke about full well, and we were both like four thumbs up. <laughs> and if you go to Lily's books and compare, you know, she's a clinical nutritionist, like she's worked in the system, in research programs and everything else. She, like Ayla, they know what needs to go in these vitamins. And they also, like I said, it's not a replacement for a healthy lifestyle, but this is definitely a great insurance policy. So go to Lily's books and you'll look at the recommended daily allow, you know, allowance and, and how much of this nutrient and how much taurine and glycine and everything you need and folate. You're going to get that through a healthy lifestyle. And then you add on Fullwell's vitamin and you are set. You have done your part. So I just can't speak highly enough. Go to fullwellfertility.com, use code BELOVED10, you'll save 10% on your purchase, and they've got fish oil, and they've got a men's virility vitamin for those couples out there 
who are struggling to get pregnant. And they also have a Nourish Nerves tonic. All of their products are on my shelf at all times. I just can't say anything more. I can't say more about how great this product is. The show is also sponsored by Organifi. My friend Drew Canoli has started the only, let's say, smoothie drink additive company that I will ever recommend to anybody. And that's because their entire product line is glyphosate residue-free. It's non-GMO. It's USDA-certified organic. They're using the cleanest ingredients. Drew puts his heart and soul into these formulations, and they taste freaking delicious. Every morning, I start with a big Nalgene. I throw in a sleeve of the green or red juice, and then I actually add a little bit of LMNT, which is another product you can get a discount from. By the way, all of my product discount codes are on my website at belovedholistics.com slash shop. LMNT adds a little tartness, some extra magnesium, some extra sodium chloride, etc. You got to add that in there. You have this like tart wake-me-up beverage, especially the red, because if it's loaded with B vitamins and beets and all these other incredible organic vegetables, they're all plant-based, his formulas. I am not a plant-based liver. Um, <laughs> liver. I don't live a plant-based lifestyle. However, when I'm taking in these drinks, I realize that stuff that is made from animals and powdered and all this other stuff in general, you know, there's a couple companies like Paleo Valley and whatnot that do some incredible collagen powders and whatnot. But if you're going to make like a shake with protein, which Organifi also makes, they make it in vanilla and chocolate. If you're going to make that, taking it from animals that are poorly raised in feedlots and then processing it in some way so that you have this like weird Frankenstein version of protein is not the way to go. So I use Organifi's protein, but I also use their red juice every single morning with some element tea and it just perks me up. I don't even need coffee on those days, but it's not like a jittery buzz like you get with caffeine. It is a natural source of energy. Plus you're getting tons of other vitamins and nutrients. He includes functional mushrooms in almost every one of his products and a variety of herbs that have been used in modalities across the world long before contemporary medicine came to be. If you want to try anything from Organifi, I haven't even mentioned their pumpkin spice gold latte or their new chocolate latte, which is coming out right around this time for the Christmas season. Go to Organifi.com slash beloved. You'll save 20% on anything you purchase there. I give this stuff out like candy to my clients, to my friends, to my family, and everybody's like, mamma mia, sign me up for more. Go try Organifi. You are definitely not going to regret it. And last but not least, Bioptimizers. Bioptimizers was started by another friend of mine, Wade Lightheart. And again, it's the heart and soul of this man that goes into making some of the best supplements you'll ever find. I'm particularly fond of their magnesium breakthrough. I usually will take two capsules around 30 to 45 minutes before I am hoping to fall asleep. And it definitely helps to kind of ease me into that sleep process. If you consider my six tenets, which I've kind of borrowed, let's say, from the Czech Institute, my friend Paul Czech. Diet, movement, hydration, breathing, sleep, and mindset. Of those six, most people are adding, 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 but they're not considering the quality of their sleep. So if you wake up feeling groggy, if you find yourself you know, mind racing like me right before you fall asleep, help yourself out. Take two capsules of Bioptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough with a tall glass of water. It's at least going to help. It may not knock you out, but you're not trying to knock yourself out. You want to naturally fall into your normal sleep cycle. If you go to magbreakthrough.com slash holistic OBGYN and buy some magnesium breakthrough for a limited time, 
only, they're going to be throwing in some extra goodies, including their masszymes, their P3OM, their HCL, all of which are on my counter. We're going to be having sushi tonight, so I'll be taking some of their, their blood sugar control compound and their masszymes in order to help with digestion. And you can get some of those for free if you go to magbreakthrough.com slash holistic OBGYN. There's one more sponsor, but I'm going to save that one. It's a special new sponsor. I'm super stoked about it. I'll give you a hint. It's BirthFit. And Lindsay Kentu has put together an incredible programming community for women who want some specialized coaching and, and community around exercise, nutrition, lifestyle in pregnancy. So I'll be telling you a little bit more about that halfway through the episode. I've chatted enough. I am so stoked for you to hear my conversation with Wapio Barlett, the Matrona. Let's just get into it. Thanks for being here, everybody. Wapio, welcome to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. It's so so good to see you. <laughs> Likewise, I'm so delighted and honored to be here. <laughs> I want you to introduce yourself in the most concise way that somebody like you can. I mean, you've got a heck of a body of work behind you, but do you want to maybe talk about some of the things we covered in our last conversation as we were preparing for this? I specifically want to know about COVID. That's actually kind of what I'm hinting at. Okay. So yes, we had this introductory conversation and I knew immediately I was going to like this fellow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It was just very warm and very natural. And so when that happens, you just unspool whatever is present, okay? So what we decided to do was get very deep, very fast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think the word death came up in about 60 seconds in. So that's how I knew I was going to love you. (laughs) (laughs) So we actually even started our discussion with COVID because I had had COVID a few times and Nathan was like, oh, I've heard you has. And I was like, no, 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 wait a minute. Let me tell you my real story about COVID has nothing to do with, you know, being debilitated or under the weather or, you know, not coming back. All right. So we talked about that, right? Yeah. And you shared with me why you kind of left the medical field, as it were, in the sense of what's happening in hospitals and sure with the system today, which I really appreciated that, that we talked about that. And then I remember saying to you about my last conversation, I want my last conversation on this planet to be with God to be with my source or the creator or who's ever source. Yeah. There. Call it what you will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that is what happened for me in my COVID experience. I was able to transcend, I think all pain, fear, fear of death, fear of familiarity, even <laughs> that's a big one, fear of familiarity and go off into uncharted realms, but I was allowed to do that before I died. (sighs) You know, really when you're dying, you get that. But when you have sort of almost death or a (laughs) pre-death, you get to see that. You get to see how you, where you want to be when you die and who you want to be talking to and why it's not painful or awful or debilitating the process of death. Okay. I think that's where we circled around to. Yeah. What yeah. do you remember from that? <laughs> well, you know, in getting prepared for this interview, I was really thoughtful about that. I mean, you really kind of struck me because what I love about what you've said is that it is not a matter of not being afraid of death 
or not being confronted by the idea that we're going to be entering this uncharted territory. You know, not even to mention that you don't get a choice as to whether or not you die. This is something that you're going to have to go through. So whether or not you want to acknowledge it is not really relevant. It's a matter of how do we approach this and have we honored the practice rounds of losing those we've loved or maybe losing clients? You know, you're a birth worker. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Have we surrendered to the possibilities that death could offer us? Or have we gone running for the hills when something that threatens our normality? And that's really what I loved about our conversation was there was actually no conversation really around the fear or lack of fear. That's not what this was about. This was about you realizing like, okay, if this is the time where I'm going to start having these hard conversations with my creator or whatever, now's the time. Yes. And you survived it and you could look back on that but you earnestly were ready. It sounds to me like you were preparing to die. Well, true enough. Yes. Okay. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Oh my God. See, this is the type of language that now it's so liberating to surrender to some of these things, including perhaps in birth, which of course we're going to talk about. Let me share a quote with you, Wapia, that I think you're going to find very, I don't know. I think it's going to stick with you. There's a man named Stephen Jenkinson. Do you know the name? Yes, I do. Have you ever met him? No, but I've seen that he speaks about death and getting prepared. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He's kind of curmudgeon You know, I consider him sort of a mentor to me, but he has a bit of a cynical lens, I think, in many ways. But he's actually not cynical. It's actually the way he uses language that makes people look into the shadow, look into the darkness. And I think that's why people are like, oh, why does he have to be so negative? He's not being negative. He's actually being as compassionate as anybody has ever been. And, you know, he talked about COVID. He came on the show recently and his episode's not available. When it is, I'll send it to you because it was a lovely conversation for about 60 minutes. And here's a quote that I presented to him that he had said in a different interview. And we kind of parsed through this. So he said this well into the COVID experience. And he said, if there was ever a time crafted by something seemingly divine to give us a chance to more or less voluntarily rein it in, to recognize the unsustainable finally for what it is, And at the 11th hour and 55th minute, with our feet on the precipice to step back, this would have been such a time. And it's abundantly clear that that did not happen, is not happening, will not happen. Our death phobia is so adroit and so agile in the dominant culture of North America that we took the realities of COVID-19 and seconded them to our death phobia such that death phobia was more prevalent and more consequential in most of our lives than the opportunities that the crisis promised. And that is tragic beyond measure. Oh, that totally nails it, doesn't it? I think it does. I yes, think it does. Perfect. Yeah. Well, what a way to start a conversation. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> it's liberating. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, these are the things that people actually want to hear. They really want to talk about these things, but they also, I think, in order for us to talk about death, birth, mortality, everything in between. How about love, consciousness, etc.? We have to be willing to take a step back and really consider what really are we willing to risk here? What is that cost when we die? The cost of dying is perhaps not relevant. Perhaps the energy that we waste in avoiding death could instead be reutilized and harnessed to have these hard conversations with spirit, source, God, call it what you will. And there's something about your story that really resonates for me through the lens of this type of language, because people want the language in order to talk about it, but we don't talk about it. So there is no language. It's a bit of a catch 22. 
Well, what I would love to tell people from this experience for me was that when I thought I was dying and I felt my molecular bonds actually loosening, with it went all the tension that I've ever carried, all the tension that is here on this planet, that some of it's our own, but some of it's just a general level of tension all of that disappeared and you wanted to go where there was no more tension. You were happy to shake those bonds of tension and go wherever there is to go. Yeah. (laughs) It was good. God. A good friend of mine, Edith Ubuntu-Chan, she's an acupuncturist in the Bay Area and she's this marvelous woman, just an incredible mother, incredible person, incredible doctor. Like she just really brings integrity into her life. And she's willing to admit she's wrong. She's also excited to celebrate her successes and failures. And I had her on the podcast and she shared a story. This was a while back, but she shared a story about she was in Chinese medicine school, which is a pretty long process. I mean, you know, it packs a serious punch if you're going to take all of the elements of Chinese medicine. And she took Qigong and started practicing Qigong and got so deep into the practice, way beyond what the curriculum required her that she experienced a moment during a very deep meditative Qigong practice in which she exploded into a trillion pieces of light and love, which of course is not the first time many people have heard of that. But for her, this was a very real thing that happened. And then at some point during this process, she saw her body and realized, I need to go back in there. And she found her way back in there out of necessity. But when she got back in there, there was a period of intense suffering. And she even used the word, I think, depression, because now she had to be confined by the realities of being in her human body and now had to integrate this experience of being one with all, no tension, light and love through and through. And now she had to come back into her body and carry forward, which was very hard for her. So I'm wondering, after you got out of that and you experienced that, like, I am flying now, like, this is what we always hope for. Was it hard for you to now have, you know, quote, survived this thing? Well, I said to myself, there'll be something important that I have to do. So I'll do it, but I'll know what's waiting for me when I'm done. Wow. There's an answer to this question that I ask every one of my couples that comes to me, especially when they have issues with fertility. I want you to understand, my client, that we can't work together unless you can answer this question. Who am I? And why am I here? Now, it's a trick question because there's really not an answer to that. But if that question is so confronting that it's impossible for you to even try to conjecture as to what that answer might look like, it tells me that you might be very confronted by the natural transformation of spirit that happens through childbirth. Because when you go through that transformation, the old you is dying and a new version of you is being born. The baby, the woman, the partner, The couple, everything sheds its skin and is born again. And that is probably very scary for somebody who doesn't even know who they are now. And now they're about to go through this portal. Any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes, you're absolutely right. It is an ultimate transformation. And one of them that women and families often remember forever. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So what happens actually is that women go into deeper and deeper altered states. And we're comfortable with some altered states, like sleeping, 
You know, we don't get excited. Oh, we're going to have ignore normal reality. But we make it back, you know. Yeah, we yeah. Like wake up. You assume you're All coming right. back from your astral traveling in your dream. <laughs> we're familiar with that. And then sometimes people, you know, this is a great national pastime, you know, courting the altered state. Yeah. Right. Okay. In many different ways, whether it's through meditation or Qigong or EMT or something you find on the streets. Okay. We are all courting something that is bigger than us. So I honestly feel that we're ready for the transformation as well, even though we may be scared of the unknown or how it's going to unfold or what will happen after when we shed everything. Okay. But I do believe that honestly, there's something inside of us that seeks our source of consciousness and going through the birthing experience. All right. We'll just blow that wide open. And here's the other thing. I think that when you go into theta and delta states where you're far away, you know, reality's over there somewhere. Do I still have the address even, you know, if something happens to you where you know how to navigate, right? Uh, unless you get fear struck, that's why there's a caregiver there to sing so that you know, oh, she's holding the address for me. When I'm ready to come back, I know my address now. Somebody's got my back with it. I mean, to me, this is the ultimate caregiver, that that person is the presence of wisdom and reassurance for you to go out as far as your birth can take you. And what you bring back is so profound and so rich. And honestly, this one last thing, when the shamans say, all right, that when you cross over you will create a hormone in your brain. When you are in the ultimate transformations, you will have a free-flowing hormone, okay, that helps you cross over without fear and in love and in the deepest knowing of the soul. So I think that happens to women in labor and I don't worry about it. Can you repeat that one more time from the lens of the shaman? Let me wrap my head around that. Okay, so... I'm not the sprightest crayon in the box, let's oh. just say. <laughs> okay. So anytime I have gone to the jungle, usually in Peru, I have met a shaman who takes you into the jungle and you drink ayahuasca. And the shaman tells you, you know, first of all, how do you know any of this is true? All mm. of these things and visions. And if you ask the shaman, you know, the shaman will say, oh, truth comes to the worthy. Truth comes to the worthy. All right, then. <laughs> is the worthiness associated with readiness? Readiness and integrity. Mm -hmm. Intention. And mm -hmm. true seeking rather than using the medicine inappropriately or an ego being guiding you. Yeah. That's what I mean by worthy. I just thought that was so on point. And then the other thing is that when you cross over, with a big transformation, including death or, or birth, that there will be a hormone in your brain, all right, that is made and made to flow, all right, it's dimethyltryptamine, and it's meant to flow so that you go over and calm, that it allays the fear, that it helps you cross the bardo, even if you know what I'm talking about, all right? So this is just another confirmation for me, all right, that we will find our way, that we will always be taken care of. 
all right, that it's hardwired in us, okay? Seek and you shall find. What you seek seeks you. This whole bit of just letting go and letting the transformation take place and let it flow to the deepest places it can go. And in birth, I know women, sometimes they go far out. Everything is revealed, all right? And the potential to do that, all right, in a very organic, authentic way, is amazing. Actually, it's humbling yeah. is actually what it is. And you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. And I've never given birth. Everybody else out there knows that. We did have a home birth about 20 feet from here a little while back. And we used this type of breath work. I told you, it was like an hour and 45 minutes from the time the waters opened to the time a baby was asleep on her chest. They had to wake the baby up to get the APGAR score, which is for anybody out there listening, that's when you give a baby a score based on how the baby was doing inside and then outside of the uterus. It's this somewhat arbitrary in many regards. If the baby's crying in pink, who cares about the score? But they had to wake the baby up to get the score because it was important for the record. And so I don't want to sound like a broken record on my own show, but we did this type of breath work called effigy breath work, which when you're not pregnant actually takes you. It is a psychedelic experience. And it's like a kundalini rising from toes to the crown and your body starts gyrating, your muscles become contracted. It is wild. But in pregnancy, Stephanie, my wife, didn't have any of that happen. It was actually very grounding. Mm -hmm. And this baby, the portal opened, the baby came through, baby was on her chest, the portal closed, and we were a family again. But the reason I bring up effigy is that I have a friend of mine, Marin Green, she operates Indie Birth. She has had 10 you know, children, all natural, all of them were out of the hospital except for one. But even that was a free birth essentially, because nobody was, you know, going to touch Marin. And Marin, I introduced her to this breath worker, a friend of mine who does this effigy. And Sarah met with Marin and Marin called me immediately and said, that was the closest thing to childbirth that I've ever been through. And a part of it is that at some point when you're consciously hyperventilating, you want to stop With a psychedelic, the medicine's in. There's no stopping. With birth, the baby's coming. There's no stopping. With this, you could stop. Or do you open the door and go a little further? And then you open that door and go a little further. And so you could hold back. But if you push forward, you end up with this very astral experience. And so I only say all of this in order to validate that there is something about the transformation of spirit that happens in childbirth that is very ineffable. It's very, very hard to describe that. But women who have gone through that and stepped through the portal and men, if they're attending to them, their partners, they're paying attention, they're experiencing it too. But in the medical system, we're so distracted by all these other things that we don't even pay attention. Right. I understand what you're saying. That's why I'm such a big proponent of undisturbed birth. Yeah. And I feel like the love in our hearts and souls <laughs> and the caring and the conscientiousness we have makes it very hard even to get an undisturbed birth because the people who love you, they're disturbing you because they love yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the same goes for death, actually. You know, how many times have I had a yeah. woman sitting at her son's <laughs> bedside and she's like, I just don't want to leave because he might die. And I have to have this hard conversation that that umbilical tether, you are his mother. He's not going to go away until you have stepped out of the room. And then he's going to feel permission to leave. And it happens every time, Wapio, every Mm. single time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we, by rubbing the skin and putting the lotion and washcloths, yes, you are loving them. You're also distracting them from that hard conversation that they're having at the very end of life, where they look at their whole life, put it together in a story, and then they can carry that story with them through the portal. 
Yeah. And that's a really good analogy in the sense that you can honestly see in that case where someone rubbing their feet or trying to speak to them and tell them you love them would be distracting because in that moment, they know everything. Yeah. They know you love them and you know they don't need to hear anything except maybe just be witnessed. Yeah. Right? Be witnessed. Yeah, that's right. Birth and death are a lot alike in the options you have. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I see them as two sides of the same coin. I think to me, they both benefit from the same reverence and being two very sacred rites of passage. So, well, before we get into birth work, Wapio, tell everybody who you are. What do you do? Who is this Wapio lady? (laughs) Really? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That was a long introduction. (laughs) So I'm someone who had been searching for a long time for my purpose on earth. Okay. Why am I here? And I think a lot of us do that. And on our way to doing that, we do different things, different jobs, different purposes and whatnot. And then when I first got pregnant, which I was 35 when I got pregnant. All right. And something happened to me. If you asked me to roll a Dex all the days of my life, as which one did I love the best? I could tell you it was the day I realized I was pregnant for the first time. Everything blew open for me. I felt like I am really now a child of the universe. I know what stars do. I know how they do it now because I'm going to give birth and just the universe is birthing at every moment. And I'm part of that now for real. Oh, you couldn't stop me after that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I lived in Georgia where the midwifery renaissance had not arrived there, okay? So I didn't have a midwife for a while, but then actually some circumstances came together where I did have a midwife. So I had both of my children at home, but I knew after I talked to the midwife on the phone, I just knew I was going to be a midwife. And I knew that she would probably say, if I said anything to her about it, she would probably say, you know, no, you're a mother. Get back to me in three or four years. You know, I was like, no, I'm 35 now. I'm a mother and a midwife. I can do this. Bring it. So I became a midwife. All right. And I lived in Georgia, as I said, for, you know, some number of years Here's where I met my husband. And I asked my midwife if I could apprentice with her. And she said that that would be great. And that's a whole other story. I can make it real quick. So I knew better than to tell her that I wanted to apprentice with her. I said, I need to wait for my sign. And so one day, close to my due date, about two weeks or something, I told her I wanted to tell her something. So we went and we sat on my bed. And this is a defining moment for me. Okay. I still remember how the sun came in the window that day. So here's what I said to her. I said, you know, I really love you and I love my partner. And yeah, I haven't had a baby before and I'm not really stellar when it comes to pain. I don't know what's going to happen, but but here, I want to tell you that if I should ever do anything that was rude or ungrateful or ungracious, I want to apologize for that right now. And I left it at that. And she looked at me and she said, well, you'll be fine. But then she said, And I accept your apology. Well, do you know what that did for me? That totally liberated me. I could do anything I wanted to bring forth my baby, anything, because I had already apologized for anything rude and it was just liberating. And then I knew she could hear me. 
All right. Because if she had left it at, oh, you'll be fine. Don't worry. I would have been like, no, you didn't hear me. She accepted my apology. It liberated me. I was on a new trajectory that I will always listen and hear what people are saying and never blow them off or whatever. You know, you'll be fine. Oh, don't worry about it. All right. So anyway, I became a midwife and I apprenticed with her for three years and went out on my own with a friend of mine for a little while. We had both apprenticed with her. And I was that midwife that if you need me, as long as you live on this side of the Mississippi, I'll come. (laughs) As long as you live on this side of the Mason-Dixon line, I'll come. I'll be there. I'll be there. Wow. (laughs) So anyway, I had a very lovely practice. It was very bucolic. One of the things that I really treasured was that I... What was that word you said, bucolic? Yeah, you know... What's that word mean? It means just kind of like how low-key... And bucolic, just, you know, kind oh. of things just flow along, like on the farm or something like that. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. Bucolic. So okay. my point is I didn't have a really large inner city practice or anything like that. I had plenty of women of time to spend with women. And I did. And the hallmark of that, what came of that was this. I had very few complications. I mean, not me, but moms that I worked with had very few complications. And I would go to conferences or I'd go down to Atlanta, you know, meet some of the midwives there. And I mean, I've heard crazy things like, you know, out of every 10 women, five have a hemorrhage. Right. Out of every 10 babies, four need to be resuscitated. And I was like, that's not my experience. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, I've only seen one hemorrhage and I've been to, you know, around 500 births and I've only seen one woman hemorrhage and I've only resuscitated one baby. So I felt like, I'm on a different page than some of my colleagues. And I felt like, well, what I'm going to do for the rest of my time in birth, I'm just going to go to birth, do what I'm doing and create a whole new paradigm. And I call it the quantum paradigm because I think it's a leap ahead of where we have been. And I mean, I'm fine if a woman has a complication, it's her complication. And I will bring everything I know to help her through that. But I'm not going to tell her she can't have a complication. I so respect women. I really believe that trust is a very important factor in how we show up, all right, as a trustworthy person or not. Right. These are some of the things that I put in my quantum paradigm, you know. But anyway... But can I make a quick comment about the trust thing? Because I think that actually bears sort of putting some emphasis on it. The big issue that people have in the hospital, and the reason that more women, I think, nowadays are seeking home births, is actually not because of the perception of safety at home. It actually has nothing to do with the data, hemorrhage risks, C-section risks, whatever. Of course, that's a part of it. But I think it's more important that as we see what a woman experiences in the hospital, people coming in and out of her room, barely introducing themselves, and then saying something like, you're going to have historically one of the most dangerous surgeries. We're going to roll you down the hallway right now. I think we're going to do that. Uh, you, you guys good? You know, you don't want your baby to die or whatever else. Most people, if a midwife is caring for them at home and they've developed this relationship over so many months, are going to say, if you think that's best, I really appreciate your input and I want to have a real conversation around that. Instead, doctors perceive women who are pushing back in the hospitals as being like arrogant and thinking they know everything and everything else. What's actually lacking doctor is that you have built no trust with this person. You have no idea who they are, what their past traumas are, what their story is coming into this very important experience of having a baby. 
and now you're making a recommendation that they've already received red flags from on social media and the news and everything else. So that trust piece is actually critical to having an autonomous birth and to having perhaps the birth that you can own through the lens of informed consent and you know, refusing treatment and everything else. So that trust piece is actually, I think, the part that's missing in the hospitals. Whereas most midwives don't have a lot of complications because they have this trusting, this great rapport with their client. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that is one of the hallmarks of what a new paradigm could look like, that it was based on trust and transparency. Yeah, yeah. And many women value trust over tests. <laughs> Do yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. If I have trust with you, because this is something I've often found. Women pretty much know their bodies. I mean, the women I work with know their bodies and they know if something's off or not. And that's not really the hallmark of the kind of care they want. They want their emotional body and their psychological body and their soul body to be nurtured. Yeah. More than their physical body. They've Amen. got the physical body Amen. stuff. Yet we focus very much on what your physical body is doing, a lot of the testing and things like that. And being in birth for 40 years now, I'm realizing that. There haven't been many changes in caregiving. We're still kind of doing the same thing. But the changes in these 40 years are with the mothers and the families. They are showing up for their births. Yeah. They want their own birth as well. All right. They don't want an artificially curated hospital birth. You know, Artificially curated. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They want the real deal. That is their birth, and they don't want their sister's birth either. They yeah. want their birth. And they're looking for caregivers who are able to provide that to women. All right. And the trustworthy piece, it's paramount. It's all built on that. I mean, there's nurturing and there's soul level connections that I love. But then again, I also tell people this you know, there's a lot of love in the world. I mean, there could always be more, but there's a lot of love, right? But what you don't see is a lot of trust. Yeah. I think we're working on trust as a global issue, actually. It's far beyond birth. Who do you really trust? I think it's a global issue, and I think we've got to get it together because I think it's an evolution stopper. You know, if we can't trust each other and what we have now, how can we trust being given more and more gifts, you know, like all of that, that, that would come with evolution? Yeah. So I love to talk about trust and transparency. I love to see it come up. I think it's a very important issue that we are addressing. Was there ever a time in your care of birthing women who, where you felt like you had violated somebody's trust and then you had to sort of pass them on to a different midwife because you knew that that sacred bond was broken? Actually, no. And there are some people that I didn't trust actually, and I passed them on to another midwife, but I don't think I have ever been in a position where I have thrown anyone under the bus or betrayed it. Yeah. Well, you know, what I learned early on is not to set up a power dynamic with the mother because that creates a distrust right there. And almost all caregiving is based on the fact of taking a history, meaning that you have now created a power dynamic. I can know everything and anything I want about you, but you don't get to ask me when the last time I had a glass of wine was, but I can ask you that, all right? Or how many abortions you've had, sure. or how many STIs, sure. or how many pounds of sugar you eat. I mean, we do this. Cannabis and use, I, psychedelics, whatever. It's like... Who 
Yeah, who cares? <laughs> well, it's not your really, in any other arena, it's not your business. It's not you my know? business. Yeah, yeah. And if someone trusted you, they would tell you what they need you to know about them to give them good care. We don't have to create that power dynamic with you and your clipboard and asking these questions and the person sitting there. I mean, maybe some women love that. All right. But I have found that once again, you with the clipboard are the authority. All right. And you will ask all the questions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a pipe, you know, it's just the smallest little thing that we do so unconsciously. You know, you go in, you get your history taken. I don't do that until, I don't know, 20 weeks. Oh my gosh. That's kind of like my practice too, where people, they kind of like cringe when I say that, but it's like, I need a month or so to actually get to know who you are before I'm going to start asking you the intimate details about your history of STDs and all this other stuff. Let's spend some time getting to know one another. Yeah. I think that that's far more important. These other things. Yeah. We'll check those boxes later, but like, I really want to know who you are. What are your values? What's your story? All those things I mentioned before. And that's why I've never betrayed anyone's trust. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. At 20 weeks, 24 weeks or something like that, I do a homeopathic spiral with them. My charting is I do spiral charting. And what I look for is patterns and not facts. Okay. I do keep records and I do have a flow chart and all of those things. But I find that when a woman has gained some trust, you know, and we're relaxed with each other, then I do a spiral little chart where I just spiral her all the way through her life, all the way up till now. And she can look at it. We have a big piece of newspaper. She can look at it and say, oh my gosh, that's my life. Do you have an example of that? Like on your phone maybe or somewhere that you can just show me? I'm really curious. We have a video here. Do you happen to have one of those? It doesn't have to have anybody's name, but I'm curious what that looks like. Well, it would be in a video somewhere okay. when I do okay. a lesson on Okay. And when I did my homeopathic class, that's what I also taught with. It was all women. Yeah. And I taught them to do homeopathic spiral charting so that you get to see the patterns, not just the facts. All right. And you see it unfolding. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Well, you know, I study anthroposophic medicine as well. And I just enrolled in there. This will be like my third board certification. Like, you know, you just keep learning about new ways to improve the care you provide to people. And of course, my foundation is allopathy, but I've dabbled in Ayurveda and Chinese medicine and homeopathy. And now anthroposophy is, I think, more comparable to allopathy than anything else, but it has nothing in common with allopathy. Apart from the way that it starts with history, physical, blah, 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 blah. But then the modalities and the way that you even look at a person's health issues Mm. is so Mm -hmm. dramatically different. It's the polar opposite. And they use some homeopathic remedies, as I'm sure, through the, you know, the lens of Rudolf Steiner and how they use the roots from this plant and the flowers of this plant. And we're going to do it under this time of the year. We're going to create alchemical reactions. And one thing that we learn to do in that is to track a person's life on a U. And this actually gets into Waldorf school, et cetera. And if you put a bunch of points on the U in seven-year increments, things mm-hmm. that arise around, let's say, your 60s, may have presented maybe a reflection of something that happened in your 10s or 20s. So you see these things arise from a childhood trauma. It arrives around the menopause time, and you can actually map it out on the U. So if you folded the U on half, you know, onto itself, this is actually how you map that out. But if you don't do that mapping or create that visual aid for somebody, it's sometimes hard for people to really consider because we think of everything as so linear. Yes. Mm -hmm. But the spiral is also a beautiful sort of interpretation of a person's life and their work. Yeah, I think it's the same approach. 
just using different tools or different yeah yeah specifics. Uh huh. So you still teach midwives, as I know. Are you still doing your full midwifery education, or have you started to pare that down to focus on some specifics? Well, here's what, you know, I have spent years and years creating this midwifery program. This is all the distillation of everything that women have taught me. And then also some of the great authors, Michelle O'Donnell and Anne Fry. He's coming on my show, by the way. I wrangled Michelle O'Donnell. So. (laughs) Oh, lucky you. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. All right. But you were here first, WAPIO. You're obviously, you you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're having the great man. Yeah. Okay. He's coming. Yeah. The venerable. So this is like, you know, my life work. Okay. And I want people to have it because it is quantum birth. So I have it. It's a midwifery program. What I am not doing though, is really teaching or certifying or anything like that. Midwives. Mm -hmm. I feel like in many ways, and you can let me know what you think about this, but I feel like in many ways, the word midwife has been kind of co-opted by the system. And when people think of a a midwife, they think of someone who's gone to school, maybe university for four years, who has lots of clinical knowledge under her belt, all right, which she may or may use liberally or not, okay? And so, but what I'm offering is a one-year romp, okay, if you will, with the midwifery program. It's way too much content to get in it in a year, but I feel if you go through it, and this is another thing. If you come and study with me, I ask you to create a devotional, to be devoted to birth for one year. Learn everything you can about birth in one year. Now, you won't learn everything there is to know, but you learn everything, and then you'll have this midwifery curriculum to guide you, all right? And so what will you do when you come out. Well, I don't feel like it's appropriate to call yourself a midwife unless you've done the due diligence of what this culture says a midwife is. You know what I'm saying? Okay. But I also know this, you know, over the years, I'm always watching what women want. All right. And I saw they wanted doulas at one point. And now I see that they want something different. They want somebody to be a companion and a fountain of information in their pregnancy, in their birth, and in their postpartum. Hmm. And they don't want that person to make choices for them. They want to make their own choices. Okay. And I am so on this as an evolutionary trajectory, women and families wanting to make their own choices. And for me, as the caregiver, I unfold all of these options for you now that can have that you didn't have 20 years ago. All right. I mean, no one was talking about free birth then, you know, 20 years ago. And now look at the gamut, you know? So for me, anyone who wants to serve birthing women is welcome at the table actually. All right. And so would um, I be able to take your course as an OBGYN? Would I be welcome? Yes, of course you could. Good. Maybe I will. Maybe that'll be 2023 for me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And I love this course because there's a wisdom keeping part to it. And I feel like there's a certain maturity that a person would consider having before they jumped into the realms of holding transformation for another woman or family. I don't think you have to have a baby, Mm -hmm. but I think you have to know and be comfortable and conversant where women go when they're having a baby. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I don't think you just need to study birth academically for years and years, you're kind of institutionalizing it. But I do think you need to have a good understanding of birth. And I think that 
for someone who would call themselves a birth attendant, all right, a holistic, independent birth attendant rather than a midwife. Mm -hmm. Okay. That sounds good to me. And at the Matrona, that means you've taken at least one year of devotional to birth. Okay. You've done your due diligence. You have a point of reference for anything. And then you take a little extra. I mean, the course, of course, has skills in it. How could you have a mid? Wifery course without skills. But the other thing that we ask people to do then is to take like a little 12 week intuitive interventions course with us. And then I'm like, go forth, go forth and multiply because here come the birth attendants. Yeah. 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 Well, let's, let's unpack some of this. Cause I actually agree with you. I never like having people come on the show and just hanging on their every word. But you and I are kindred spirits, even though I'm younger than you, the way that you speak is kind of the way that I was feeling. And I didn't have anybody to give me context for why I was feeling disgruntled, let's say, or disillusioned maybe with maternity care in the hospital system. So I don't want to hang on every word and just say, Wapio, you're the best. But Wapio, you are the best. Like there's a lot of really good stuff here. So let's talk about that first thing that you said that you actually said, maybe you disagree with me or whatever. The conversation around the term midwife is actually, I kind of feel like it's not relevant unless we're going to operate the system in the way that it's been operating. So what I mean by that is that when a person comes out of midwifery training, I'm using air quotes on my end, they now presume that they can call themselves a midwife and attend births and they have all the skills to do that. Yes. And you need to consider that if you're calling yourself a midwife, that is actually a medical legal distinction across the United States. So if you say, I'm a midwife, and you're advertising, I'm a midwife, but you never apprenticed, and you aren't totally confident and trusting, perhaps, of a woman exercising her autonomy, let's say, in childbirth, then you're going to also have to play the game of the medical legal system, etc. Now, on the other hand, you come out of midwifery training and with some humility, you say, I would like to attend births. I want to be a birth keeper. I want to hold space for women in childbirth. You might have that apprentice for the next 50 years until you emerge at the end of your career and you can finally call yourself a midwife. It doesn't matter. It's how are you advertising yourself and when do you feel confident in showing up for a person and really holding space for this process to unfold versus feeling like you have a list of tools. Which tool do I use first? That's what doctors do. Don't do that. That's not what this is about. So that's the first thing I wanted to say is I definitely agree with you there. I don't actually think the title is as important as how you've shown up through your training and how you've really kind of gone inward to determine what is my role here and how can I show up for this person? Like that is a big question. It's very hard for people to answer. Yes, I think that it takes us back to that question of worthy. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Worthy and ready. And not acting from ego or pulling rank on people or imagining that you could stand with a woman in transformation when you haven't healed your own wounds and you bring them into someone's birth. Exactly. This is our wisdom keeping part. Yeah. Okay. And I'm very happy about it. I'm very happy that. A lot of women tell me that this is the part they really wanted. They can get the book study. Yeah, that's and exactly I'm like, right. I have to make sure. But you know, <laughs> yeah. if you can look it up on your phone, that's not really a good reason to go to school anymore. Which is why people aren't going to school like they used to. They're actually, you know, we're learning through experience and apprenticeship and whatnot. I'm glad that that's come back. But go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Yes. No. Well, that's kind of what I was saying. So, what were you thinking? 
Well, no, yeah, that was the first thing that came to mind. Then, you know, the other thing I've seen a lot of midwives who come out of like indie birth, et cetera, they end up in a place where they feel like they've checked all the boxes and now they're advertising themselves as a midwife without realizing that that term midwife might mean to somebody one thing and you mean something totally different. So we have to actually be very honest and through integrity, really tell a person show up for a person in the way that we plan to show up as opposed to advertising, yeah, I'm a midwife just like all the other midwives. Well, like compared to who? I mean, if you're a midwife in the hospital, that's actually a very different practice. On the other hand, if you've never attended a birth, it's important for somebody to know, you know, I haven't had an emergency. Maybe I don't carry the uterotonic medications or whatever, you know? So let's say, I don't know, a client has a history of a really bad postpartum hemorrhage that required blood transfusion and transfer to the hospital. If you show up and you don't have the medications to do that because maybe you just didn't know to have it, then that's, you put your clients into a tough position because it's not a matter of licensing or anything else. It's a matter of knowing what you're capable of and how you've sort of presented those skills to your clients. So some midwives get out of a training program and bam, they start going to births without having any apprenticeship. And I think that I have to say, like, I kind of think that's irresponsible because I think that the client needs to know, like, who are you? Like, we really need to get to know each other and what your expectations are. Otherwise, bad things could happen because we didn't even know to look for them. And that's not to say we should look for bad things, but we didn't even know the signs of an abruption or the signs of a uterine rupture or whatever else. So what do you think about that? Well, I think you're right. I think, you know, first of all, you can't call yourself a midwife in today's current milieu because you have not earned that. (laughs) Right. You haven't gone to university for four years and you don't know how to administer, you know, Pitocin if necessary. So yes, the word midwife, I think we need to be very clear about it. And that's why I have stopped using the word actually in a sense. All right. I say you have a midwifery curriculum. All right. But I'm not training you as a midwife and please do not call yourself a midwife. It's just your ego wanting to be validated (laughs) in many ways. I mean, what's the difference? You're just going to, you know, and then I also say that it's important to know the emotional and psychological effects of birth, but it's equally important to know the physiology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Otherwise it's kind of magical thinking. Like if you're stuck out here after that ayahuasca experience without putting your feet back down on the ground, you know, there's a connection here. This is all important, equally important. I agree with you. Absolutely. Okay. And so on the other hand, you know, a woman has the right to make a choice. Okay. She can choose anyone she wants. She may want you because actually she may want you because you don't carry a lot of clinical knowledge. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That's her choice. And I have seen that happen. All right. I've seen a woman say, oh, but I'm not a midwife. And she's like, well, that's why I want you. <laughs> you know? It's exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> well, and in a milieu where women want to make their own choices, okay, it's pretty relevant for all of us to realize, I mean, who does what? You're right about the word midwife. It doesn't really matter. Okay. But what does matter if you are misleading someone, you see, you know what I'm saying? By yeah. saying you're something that you're not. Okay. I also feel that the difference between a midwife to me, one of them, and for instance, like someone who calls himself a birth attendant, a holistic independent birth attendant, is the approach and all about decision making. I feel like a midwife is trained very carefully and very disciplined to manage 
a case to manage women, manage a birth. And one of the things that women are saying is that's kind of why I don't want a midwife. I don't want someone to manage me. You know, I don't want their opinion of what Mm -hmm. birth should look like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This to me is huge. Women really do want someone who is in between, not a doula and not a midwife, knows what a midwife knows, all right, but doesn't manage you the way a midwife would manage you. Right. You got what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, you know, this is really, really confronting for some people, but I always tell people if I was pregnant, which of course I never will be, this is another like white man conjecturing about women's health. I get it. But if I was a woman and I was going to have a baby, perhaps it's because I know what I know and I just have experienced birth in that way, even with my own wife 20 feet from here in our bed, on her back, by the way, in lithotomy, the one that everybody's like, you should never birth on your back. She just put a baby to slit out right on her back, eight pound baby. So, you know, there's no right way to have a baby. And so what I tell people is if I were pregnant and I was having a baby, I would probably have a free birth. I would just do it for me. I don't know why, but that's what I'm called to do. And maybe I'd have somebody down the street who I could call if something came up. And maybe it's because I have the knowledge about how to fix emergency things if those rare things happen. But there is something to being left alone in birth. And I do kind of see it from the lens of like, the free birth community, definitely not close to that community. There's something about how they speak about birth and the undisturbed nature of a free birth that actually is quite beautiful. I think that one of the issues, however, is that over the years, women have cared for women in birth. And that's actually what you are doing. You're actually creating, you're reinvigorating the notion that women who have been wise healers ever since the beginning of written human history that you're actually reinvigorating the spirit, the essence of what it means to care for another person, whether they're in birth, death, whatever. But those same women who were attending to birth were also attending to death. So as you're inspiring that, I'm also hearing some language around the sort of essence of having an undisturbed birth. And I totally appreciate that. The reason I think I would have a free birth, though, the reason I say that is when you hire a midwife or a doctor or whatever else, you're going to a person who is trained to manage a thing that doesn't need to be managed, like you said. (laughs) If I was going to have somebody attend me, it would be you or it'd be one of your students who's actually gone through this training because you're not teaching them to be a manager of birth and to know all the data and all this nonsense that people get so myopically focused on. You're teaching them to hold space and to show up for somebody who's going through this transformation. And whether or not you call that a free birth is, you know, I don't really care. But a lot of people would say, you should have nobody there. Well, why wouldn't I want somebody there? (laughs) Why wouldn't I want you to love me through this and hold me through this? It doesn't mean you're intervening. It doesn't mean you're sticking things where they don't belong or not getting consent. That's all a big problem in the medical system. There's a way for us to do this that doesn't disturb the process, but really energetically holds space and allows it to unfold in the way that a beautiful birth can. And you know, some of the free birth moms tell me, I loved my birth. But what would have been really nice would have been having a wise woman just sitting. Oh, I love that. Yeah. You know, just as the presence of wisdom and reassurance in my birth, you know, that's what I'd love to provide women for. And we both know that a field of flowers doesn't bloom at all the same time. So we have women who want that. And we also have women who would really like to have someone manage them. (laughs) So Here's to the midwives. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, if that's what you want, there's plenty of people out there to do that. Absolutely. (music) 
So the new sponsor that we're adding on to the holistic OBGYN community is none other than BirthFit. This is a pregnancy and postpartum-specific lifestyle program. They believe that full autonomy starts with radical responsibility of your very own lifestyle practices, whatever that means, whatever your resources can do for you. Let's configure that. Let's optimize how you're living your life so that you can minimize any complications in pregnancy, postpartum. You can maximize your fertility. You can decrease your postpartum recovery time. You can get back to being you during and after pregnancy. Many women say that they thrive in pregnancy. My wife used to say, I felt like a goddess in pregnancy. That's possible. And there is some elements of taking responsibility for the things that you have control over in order to optimize the external and internal environments while you're growing a new human. BirthFit, this is what they do. They're on a mission to get women moving and training in a way that supports whatever season or cycle they're in and their overall well-being from the inside out. BirthFit offers nervous system-supported general strength and conditioning, human movement foundations, and core and pelvic floor basics. How many women out there have an issue with pain in their pelvis or urinary or fecal incontinence for months to years after they've had a baby. This is where it's at. There are companies out there that specialize in this. This is a comprehensive prenatal training program that you're going to find at BirthFit. They're here to guide you as you cultivate a deeper trust in your body through one of their many programs. And they have this incredible community. It's the B community where fitness, education, and connection meets. So if you're interested in checking out BirthFit, they have an amazingly generous offer. First off, go to birthfit.com, spelled exactly as I said it. Use code BELOVED, and you're going to get a free month in their B community. Generally, you're going to pay a monthly membership. It's about 25 bucks a month. But what you're going to do is you're going to find yourself immersed in a community led by women for women. And with that code, you're going to get one month free access just to check it out. If you like it, 25 bucks a month is like nothing. That's like two bottles of wine. Not too many people are drinking two bottles of wine anyways a month. They're probably doing the beer and the bourbon and the mojitos and whatnot. (laughs) Pick your poison. But if you're wanting to embrace cyclical strength and conditioning before, during, and after your birth, the B community is for you. You're going to find so many women that have the same questions that you do and will probably lend a lot of their experience to helping you figure out what is plaguing you, what's preventing you from achieving lasting vitality. So go to birthfit.com. Use code BELOVED. You'll get one month free access. I can't recommend this company enough. Lindsay was like on board as soon as I told her the opportunity was here. So please support her. Supporting our sponsors helps keep this show running. Let's get back now to my conversation with Wapio the Matrona. I think we get so caught up in titles, Wapio, that we forget about what are we doing here? We're honoring a baby coming into the world. I know. And however a person wants that to be done, that's okay. Like That's probably the right answer. Whether you think you can, you think you can't, you're right. <laughs> you know, I would love to tell you, Nathan, what I see happening at birth. Yeah. Okay. I haven't caught a baby in years. Okay. I apprenticed for three years and then I was a young midwife. And I heard the definition of giving birth in the Hispanic paradigm. And what it is, is to give light, to give the light. So I have built this whole understanding around the light, okay, in the sense that sperm are light carriers, right? Their little mitochondrial bodies are just shooting off photons of light, okay? 
And so the light comes to the ovum and she receives it. If that's what she wants, she receives it. And then there's a little video out there that shows how she sparkles, you know, for like about 30 seconds. She becomes the light because now she's carrying that light that she was given. All right. By a sperm. Okay. And then what happens is she agrees to gestate that light. And then she agrees to give birth or to give that light. And to me, the person, after I heard that, I never caught another baby because I realized I am not the person who is supposed to receive the light. I'm not. Okay. Unless a woman tells me that's what she wants. But what women said was like, no, we want our partners to receive the light. Isn't that the right person? Doesn't that make sense? I would be over in the corner. I was never in a woman's field again after that, unless she told me to be. But I was where she could see me. Like if she was like raise an eyebrow, I could come quickly. But what happens then when the father is poised to receive that light, right? What a magic, mystical undeniably transformative moment that is. And I see a dad, most of the time I see women who don't have any kind of program running about what position they should be in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They get on one knee, very strong, very upright, very powerful. And I see that their partner kneels down in front of them. Okay. And all of a sudden the archangel has arrived. I see his wings go out like whoosh. There's no testosterone here, only oxytocin with both people, okay? He's full of it. He's crying. He's going to receive the light that he put in there nine months ago. And, you know, fathers are amazing. They don't need to be taught anything. Most of those fathers just put the baby down, face down, between them, between the mother and the father, because she's still having molecular changes. And I find that when you're not bothering a woman or when there's no you know, blueprint for what she should do. Oftentimes women don't pick up their babies right away. They're like here and the baby's between them and the father. And like the father's crying, the wings are out. There's no testosterone. It's so beautiful. And then the father waits, just waits. Baby's there. The baby's breathing, changing over to neonatal circulation. The baby could be there. Just let that baby be there and do those things. And the father is that archangel. And then all of a sudden the mother comes back and she has a baby and he's watching. The dad is watching. She's going to pick up our light. She gave it to me. I put it down in front of us. Now she's back. She's going to pick up our light. And she does. And it's this magical oh thing when gosh. she picks up this baby. And once again, you know, he's watching. And do you know when a woman picks up her baby like that, Something happens to the retinas of both of their eyes. They start to sparkle. There's light. And I know it happens with the father too. We haven't verified the father's sparkles, but we doubt have verified that the retina of the baby's light and the mother's eye, baby and mother, something happens there. It's a magical thing where you a phase lock happens. You have agreed to be a lifeline to this child. And you, sir, have agreed to be the protector and the divine guardian of these two people. Oh, my God. So she picks up the light again. All right. And it's their light. And it keeps going back and forth. It's like infinity. This is why we last forever. You know, 
And if I could say one thing too here. Oh, my Lord. In our current milieu of domestic violence, what's the answer? Know the answer. The answer is that if a father catches his baby, he is much less likely to ever harm either of these two people. No kidding. Right? Because he's been given his role. And when you see these fathers, they're like, I had a friend who told me, well, I have three children and my husband caught the last one. We decided to do it differently. It was We did a free birth and he caught the baby. She said, Wabio, he can't get away from the baby. He's always like looking at the baby. He's always like touching the baby. He's always like saying, this is so beautiful. This baby is so beautiful. This is the most beautiful baby. And she's like, well, you have two other children. He's like, I know, but this is a beautiful baby. And what he was doing was just honoring the fact that he was bonded with this baby in the way that His a man needs to baby. be bonded with those two people, that mother and child. All right. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, uh, gosh, thank you for sharing that. Wapio. I feel like hearing you describe that in a way that only you can really is like, it was worth the price of admission to even getting this whole thing together. That was such a beautiful story. I wanted to reflect on that as a father of two little girls. You know, of course it changes you, but I do think it's important that we consider what is a man's role in this. And actually, I'm not slinging mud or anything, but there is a bit of an anti-man kind of movement within some birth communities, and I won't say who. And it's almost like, you know, people are not fighting for equality, they're fighting for privilege. And women who are like, down with men and this and that, you don't get it. Like, if we have, the seesaw is like this, yes, Men in our patriarchy have dominated over women. If we turn the seesaw in this way, we're going to have equal issues. They're just going to be different issues. Right. And I also wanted to share something. I just released this two to three hour solo cast on, it was a brief-ish history of Western medicine, witches, and women healers. So I'll send you the episode to listen to on your next long drive. But I wanted to talk a little bit about something that is contrast with the way you just described the role of the masculine and feminine in this divine process of creating life. And this goes back to like the 14th century, you know, the crimes of witches were female sexuality, organizing into groups, and then magical powers affecting health, whether it was harmful or otherwise. And, you know, if you recall, you know, this is the period of time when the church really was starting to dominate over the state. And we had the Catholics and Protestants, sorry, everybody out there, those two denominations were really starting to rule the world. And a part of the reframing of this beautiful birth process, which had been honored through the female deities and the androgynous deities of ancient Sumer all the way up through, up until about 1000 AD, there was still an appreciation for the female deities, the fertility goddesses, etc. And so the church, you know, in its sort of systematic overtaking of birth, described it like this. So you had described it as light being deposited and then gestating and then being born. And these two people who created this light are now relishing in the light itself, the love, the light, etc. Well, listen to the church's sort of articulation, let's say, of how a baby is made. Through intercourse, the male deposits a homunculus, which is just a tiny human, into the mother, complete with a soul. And then when this homunculus, this tiny human grows and then is birthed, what was being preach, what was being taught by the church was that the homunculus, this little human will die until it reaches male hands, typically the hands of a priest for baptism. That was the only way to ensure salvation of the soul. So this type of language was used in order to 
justify the attack on women healers of the time. And during the witch trials, if you're a midwife attending to birth, you were the most egregious violator of these new rules. And I just want to contrast that with the way you describe it. It really smacks more of this more ancient tradition where, you know, we had this equality of the masculine and feminine, right? And for the purpose of life-giving and fertility and whatnot, those deities lived within the earth. They were a part of the earth. They were inextricably linked with nature. And the masculine was separate. It was the walls of the river and the river was the feminine, you know? And then, of course, we graduated to a more dyadic mother-father. But now we have this man in the clouds that is above and beyond nature. And of course, the knowledge of physiology and everything could be wielded by men. And that was justification for the war on nature that we're still experiencing today. It's so conflicting when you consider how your story made me feel and how the story that I told would make people feel. It's like one is light and love, one is fear and hate, you know, fear of eternal hellfire if the hands of a priest don't touch that baby as soon after birth as possible, which is why I think it is very understandable, at least, when people are so confronted by the role of men in birth. We don't need to push men out. We need to completely change our paradigm, what your whole purpose is here. Because it's true, when a man isn't involved, I do think that there's a trauma that they carry forth, and it comes out in child abuse, and it comes out in all this other bad stuff, domestic violence and whatnot. So I'll stop there. What do you think? Oh, I think that's what I'm saying in in many ways, okay? That the old paradigm, that that old paradigm that was run by the patriarchy is nobody Nobody in their right mind would believe that anymore. Right. (laughs) But but then what else do you get? What else do you have? Because you do have a, in many ways, in many times, a male doctor receiving their child. Okay. I think to myself, if I were a man, how would I swallow that down? It's okay for this person to be with my partner while she's exposed. It's okay for random people to come in the room while she's exposed. Yeah. I feel like if I were a man, which, you know, I'm not, you know, well, here, this is it. One time, the second person I ever worked with, I said, so, you know, you're going to be at the birth and everything and, you know, just making assumptions and, you know, trying to say it'll be great and wonderful. And he said, well, I don't know. And that really stopped me in my tracks because I thought, what do you mean? You kind of, what do you mean? You don't know. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and then he said, well, you know, this is our second child and I was at my first child's birth and I don't care what you think actually, but I had to leave because I could not bear watching my wife be what I would consider raped. Mm. And all I said was, well, this is not going to be like that now or again, ever. And I'm wow. sorry. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I mean, that's a, you know, a dramatic story there, but I just wonder if all men might on some level carry a little bit of that too. Yeah. I don't think it's overly dramatic at all, Wapio. Again, I don't like to hold on every person's words, but I can't tell you how many women have said they felt like they were raped in the hospital. Healthy mom, healthy baby, everything was totally fine, but there were just too many instances when things were done to her, especially invasive exams and whatnot. And when she said no, and they said, we have to do it, and they kind of just kept going through without listening to the no, and no, 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 no. It hurts. Your body tightens up. Maybe the nurse is holding one your shoulder down and one leg back. Your husband, the person who is a part of this, you're gestating his light, is holding your leg back 
and your shoulders down, pinning you to the ground while somebody who, without consent, is shoving their hand into your womb space. There's a trauma there. That's not okay. (laughs) That is not okay. And yet the family is so much built on that. That's to me, that's why there is so much resentment deep down. A man has to resent this. I would. I would resent it. I would be all in favor of having a free birth, okay, if I were a man and I understood. You know, but what we've done to dads today is we've made them responsible for the physiology. You know, your wife needs this or your partner needs this. This is my suggestion. Right. And I know that there are. I'm sure you do too, that there are little strategies that people use to convince people to do things in the hospital. It's called coercion, Wapio. That's the word I use. Coercion, not convincing, but coercion. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. It's sad. That's true. But things are changing. Like I said, women are showing up. Families want their births. Families want to reclaim this. And you know, when I was a young midwife, one of the first things that families taught me And nobody said it in these words exactly. But what they were saying to me was, Wapio, we don't need you or want you to be the center of our birth. Mm. And I had the grace to hear that and back up. Yeah. Right? No, we want our partners there. We want you at the birth, but we want you to back up. And I graciously did that. Ah, my practice would have been so different if I hadn't learned that from women and received that learning in humility and total understanding. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I told you this, but when I stepped away from the system, the reason I lost my job, I won't even get into, but it had to do with COVID and me just doing what was best for the patient. I'll just leave it at that. I'm sure I told you the story. You told me that. And I think about that often. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. You know, and a dying person, a birthing person, they aren't married to the protocols and procedures and policies. They're married to the experience. This is an important experience. And however we can show up for them to embrace and embody the experience is that I feel is my job. I just happen to have a bunch of skills that in case your goals and values change, I can jump in and use them very quickly. So, oh, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? What were you saying? What was the last thing you said? I was just thinking about this poor guy every time I think about him. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well, that's our show, everybody. (laughs) Oh, no, no, I remember what I was going to say. When I, I'm sorry. (laughs) We'll see if we can edit that out or we can just see that, hey, we're just actually really human people here who are just having a human conversation, you know? So when I left the system, I was like, you know, I could be a home birth dog. I could start outfitting a car, my car with like the gear and all that stuff you drive around with. And then I was like, you know, let me step back. Let me actually start. Let me see how I can best support the midwifery care model, the wise woman midwifery care model. So I realized that a lot of midwives can't do what they do unless they have a collaborative physician who they can lean on whenever clinical conversations need to happen, like some education so they can you know, adequately inform their patient about risks, benefits, alternatives, whatever. And in some states, you can't even operate unless you have a doctor co-signing orders. So I was like, you know, I'm not going to make much money right off the bat doing this, but this is actually where I need to put my money. Like, this is where my resources should go. And it's actually been quite an amazing experience. But what I've also learned from it is that the vast majority of questions I get from collaborative midwives, I also open it up to coaches and everything else, but most of the people in the program are midwives. And they reach out and they say, here's this thing here's what I'd like to do. Can you do this for me? And sometimes what is lacking is, have you asked your client what she would like to do? 
well, no, but this is the procedure. This is what I have to do. Okay. Okay. We have some rules here. We have some guidelines put forth by your state, by ACOG, by whatever, whoever your, is it NARM? NARM, I think, is the oversight body. Yes, there are these guidelines. Yes, there are these procedures. But what your client signed up for was not somebody to feed them the procedures and protocols, but to see those guidelines as perhaps guideposts in case something does come up, instead to show up and to really create this space for them to exercise their autonomy. Like I haven't had to intervene in anything. I haven't had to really prescribe anything for my own clients for a long time. And the reason for that is when you present a person with options, risks, benefits, alternatives, you make a recommendation. It's then my job to hold space for them and support them in exercising their autonomy. That may mean that they're going to go completely against the guidelines. And that's okay too. I do think we have a lot of legal restrictions and whatnot for not showing up in the most hands-on way possible because you don't want the bad thing to happen because it's going to come down on me. But I find that those things happen less when you do have that trusting relationship between the birthing person and the person they've chosen to attend. And I don't think many people who are opting for a home birth are hiring you because they want you to follow the guidelines. I think they're hiring you because they want you to be their wise woman in the room. And that's tricky. I think we're seeing a shift, but it's very confronting, I think, to the powers that be. And I don't mean even just the bad guys or whatever. I mean, even midwives who carry that title. I think it's really hard to realize that your job is just to provide them with the information, maybe a recommendation, and then to support their decision, to pause and let them decide. It's really hard for people. So how do you get around that in your teaching? Because everybody still wants to think that they're going to have a 5% C-section rate or 5% transfer rate or whatever else. Like we're going to intervene and keep those things from happening. How do you massage that into this community? Well, I mean, it boils down to one thing. If you're in the system, you have protocols and you are responsible to those protocols. Okay. As for your license. I mean, jumping ship. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And then, okay, so what I do right now is in response to exactly that. I teach women to be birth keepers, but really birth attendants. I want them to have a good education and I want them to know what's in the mind of a midwife. I want them to know their skills. Okay. Now, if you asked me what I wanted to tell people, you know, Wabio, what would you tell pregnant women or something? You know, I would say, Hmm. Only birth with someone who has your best interests at heart. Mm. Only birth with someone who has your back. Only birth with someone for whom you are their top priority. Right. Right. And I know how hard it is to find someone like that. And it's not about women not wanting to be like that. It's the system requires that you cannot do those things. You have to protect your license. You have to do those protocols. You know, it's so leaving the system. Yeah. Like Marin did, you know, yeah, leaving your, the system. if you have a license, you've got rules now. <laughs> give it well, back. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing we can do about it unless you want to try to do good by stealth and check those boxes, you know, illegally or something like that. Okay. But still a midwife's hands are tied and even home birth midwives who are in the system. You know, I read something the other night about, you know, the professionalizing of midwifery has ruined it. That's what she was trying to say. She was a black woman who was like ranting about midwives. This is the co-opting you're talking about before. Yeah, you know, all right. The professionalism, midwifery was never a profession. It was a calling. It was a vocation. 
Okay. It was something that you were called to do and you have to choose to do that. Many are called, but few actually choose or are chosen. And so a midwife is a very important thing to be really. It's, you know, what the community expects from you as a midwife or a birth keeper or a birth attendant is that you will work in the highest and best and that you will make the women in that community your highest priority, not your license. And that's so sad. And it's such a betrayal. All right. So what are we going to do about that is we are just going to, women are going to jump ship and be birth keepers to catch them. All right. Because nobody wants to jump into the peerless abyss when you're pregnant. All right. Or maybe they do, but you know, so what do you see? Do you see anything there? Actually, I see what you're doing as an answer to that. Yeah. A midwife can work outside the system and doesn't have to be in the system because she has a friend, a soul friend who's a doctor. Yeah. I would say, so I've got about 30, I don't even know how many is now. It's probably between 30 and 40 collaborators. And I'd say about 20% are unlicensed. Uh, Probably less than that. Probably about 10% are unlicensed. And Marin is one of those people. There's a couple other people. And I use Marin's name openly because she is very public about this. A lot of other people need to sort of stay under, under the sheets. But the big point of this is that, you know, some people who are actually not good fit for the program, I've actually turned some people away. They say, oh, goody. I don't have to worry about getting in trouble because there's a doctor backing me up. Like, no, 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 no. That is not what this is about. This is actually a very, very slow, I'm one rod at a time creating a life raft Mm -hmm. that is separate from the system. I know the system. I have a license in 12 states. I am very well versed in the system and the policies and procedures of all these states. We're going to build a life raft because as long as people are tied to the system, they can't show up in authenticity. And that is not to say everybody out there should go without a license. Because if you learn from anybody like a Liz Catlin up in New York, you're going to get swept off to jail really quickly if something were to happen and somebody were to get you in trouble. The problem is that once we get a critical mass of birth workers who are actually demonstrating a really, really good outcomes for their clients... There's going to be little more the system can do, but to acknowledge that women are asking for something better. So I don't say lose your license. That's not my domain. But if we get a constituency of a hundred midwives that are doing really, really good work and demonstrating how this can be done with less intervention, but really less administrative oversight, then we start to actually be able to shift, I think, you know, our consciousness away from safety first in every stretch of the word to a heart math guided experience of one person caring for another. And my whole program is really to help people avoid the pitfalls because I am in the system and I am an MD. But if I were to start attending home births by myself, I would be tempted to lose the license and just do what I'm trained to do, putting myself perhaps in peril. But that would be, I think, the only way that I could do it knowing what I know about the system. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I'm beating the bushes for women who will come forth. Yeah. Women who will come forth and say, okay, I understand that my sisters fought very hard for informed consent back in the 80s and the 90s. There wasn't informed consent. Doctors were like, what are you talking about? And that was a good question because everyone expected you to do what your doctor said. Why would you do anything different? So informed consent finally made it. And it's being eroded, of course. Midwives are afraid to give informed consent because they'll lose their jobs. All right. Because informed consent says, no, 
I don't want that glucose tolerance test. And for you to harass me about it is not appropriate. And then the midwife has to say, but if you don't take that test, I will lose my job. So, whoa, wait a minute. We need mothers now to come up here and say, we insist on the decriminalizing of birth. Who do you think you are telling us how we can birth, where we can birth, when we can birth, and with whom we can birth? And the first thing we want you to decriminalize is that I can choose anyone, anyone to be with me at birth, and it will not involve any criminal charges or behavior. I want mothers to do that. Please. We did the informed consent for you. We fought hard for you. Please, mothers, fight for us. Yeah. Tell the authorities that you own your birth and you choose who you want with you and there's no criminalization about it. I'll add to that. I think we need to decriminalize heart-centered medical care. Like for a doctor to, (laughs) you know, like this criminalization of everything nowadays is actually degrading our our bioethical principles. So let's talk about informed consent real briefly because I mean, what you said is really powerful. One of the principles of bioethics, as we know, is autonomy. In order to exercise your autonomy, you can make an informed decision about this. You can refuse treatment with that, etc. In order for you to make that informed decision, you need to be given by me or you or anybody else risks, benefits, alternatives using non-coercive language, not under duress while you're in the middle of a contraction where you consent to a C-section or an epidural or whatever. And then my job is to support you in that decision. So that's what that looks like. This is a fundamental principle of bioethics, which goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years. So if we're going to honor informed consent, yet by me giving you information, I don't know, let's say about something that rhymes with schmaxine, you you now have the information. I've told you that there might be some risks. There might also be some benefits, but you now have the information. If you take that information and now you become apprehensive about getting said intervention, that is actually now considered sufficiently criminal that I can have my license taken away. So this criminalization, the further outsourcing of autonomy to policymakers, to the legal system, to our healthcare administrators, etc., this is degrading the possibility of having exactly what you're describing and what we've been talking about this whole episode which is why it's so important that we continue pushing back. And I don't mean pushing back like, fuck the system or anything. I mean, just realizing that, you know what? I have the ability to say no. I think I'm good. You do you, I'm going to do me over here. That is enough of a, an act of civil disobedience to really send a crazy ripple effect if we all just once in a while said, you know what? No, I'm okay. And I want that person here. I'm going to have them there. I agree. I appreciate your input, but I'm going to have this person here with me when I birth. Well, Right. And you know who that's down to? That's down to the men. I am a friend of men and I really feel that their place is in birth. They are the other important person in the room. Okay. And I also know that lawfully, legally, familiarly, socially, culturally, you name it, men actually hold the charge. The father has to hold the charge for the birth. Mm. The doctor's not in charge of the birth. You're not going to take that baby home. The hospital isn't going to keep your baby in a room down in the basement because they own your baby. Oh, no, no, no. It's the dad. And if dads knew this, there would be a huge atomic bomb released. All right. If dads realize that legally you are the one, and if you say, I don't think she wants that, let's not do that. Every doctor who knows his salt will say, oh, whoops, nope. 
that I don't want to get in trouble there. All right. And I also know that men could end obstetrical violence in a week. Because every time a man saw a woman being violated, or let's start with his own partner or wife, and that man said, don't do that, don't ever do that, and don't do that to any other woman either. In a month, I'll give it a month. We would say, <laughs> All right. I'll, uh, we'll, That's we generous. <laughs> well, it's true, though. If men stood up as a contingent, you know, you're saying a contingent. Well, let's just get this information to men that you have much more power in the birthing arena than you actually know. And no one is really there to give it to you. <sighs> we would like to just keep you in the dark. But actually, legally, lawfully, all of that. You speak for these two people. You are the bottom line. Mm, mm, you mm. will pay child support, not mm, your doctor. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? So if we could get this information out there and men knew it and stepped up, think about this. I mean, it could save a marriage. Think about here's a woman and she's sitting in bed and the nurse comes in and she wants to do a vaginal and she has told her husband, I don't want vaginals, you know, and her husband just kind of stands there and it's like, oh, well, well, you know, that's not going to fly or. But what about her husband says, I don't think she wants that. Oh, okay. Okay. There may be a little more, but the bottom line will be that she doesn't get a vaginal. So think about that. Think about you're sitting in the bed and there's your husband and he's saying, no, she doesn't want that. Let's not do that. No, I think I heard her say, no, let's not do that. That's hot, okay? (laughs) Your man, okay, is advocating for you, right? Rather than just standing by while you are suffering a procedure that you don't want and he knows it. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a white man. I'm not the ugliest guy in the room. And I have a very high level of education. When I was in the hospital, anything that I said was listened to. So that's the other thing. Like, I have some privilege. Why not put that privilege into place whenever it matters? Like asking people to leave the room. I can't tell you how many times I got my wrist slapped because I told the peds team, you guys need to step out because they're talking about kickball or something while a woman's having a baby. Like, we don't need you guys. Well, I'll let you know. And I'd say it in a polite way, but they're so confronted that they weren't allowed to be at the birth. And after having to do that so many times, it's just like, screw it. You guys do your thing. I'm going to go and support the midwives because you can't polish a turd. Like there are so many things wrong with this that even these little transgressions that I'm making, they're not going to make a difference. And I'm just going to get fired because people are tired of being told, hey, wake up. Like, look at what's happening in front of you. Stop talking about that. I know this is routine for you. It's not your baby. It's not your wife. But can you guys just pipe down or get out? You know, I mean, it's little things like that, that men actually, you guys can use this card. You can use this to support people in a positive way using, you know, respect and being courteous. I'm I'm never rude, but it's like, guys, look at what's happening here. There's a baby coming into the world. You guys can either be quiet and go in the corner over there and knit or something, or you can go back to your call room and I'll let you know. I mean, I'm not trying to tout myself as the ultimate hero, but I am saying that I guess I kind of see your point in that if men were a part of this conversation, actually, there's a lot more power there than men realize. It's not just rubbing the back and doing reboso techniques. There's actually a lot of shoulder-to-shoulder companionship that can happen here that really could start to change the ship around in the maternity care system. And I see the man as the perfect intimate advocate for his bride, okay? I feel that 
if men would do that, and it comes much more powerfully from the father. So I feel like what male doctors could do and female doctors could do is also share the information. Okay. It's more powerful when it comes from the father than the doctor, because you're going to get in trouble for doing that. But the father, his word is law. She doesn't want that. Let's not do that. Can we just whisper to the father? Now, if you have the charge here, what (laughs) do you think? You know, and some men are going to just abdicate it to you. I don't know. What do you think, doc? Let's do that. But some men are going to say, I can see that this doesn't promote well-being. Ooh, if you said that, that would turn everything on. It's yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Right. So I teach this in my doula classes. But you know what? We teach it in the form of collaboration. Instead of just saying, no, she doesn't want that. No, she doesn't want that. Don't do that. Don't do this. It's more like, what can we give the nurse? We're not going to take the Pitocin, but instead of just saying, no, what we're going to do is say, well, what does the nurse need? Let's give her that. What we've come up with is she needs respect and appreciation. Let's give her that. She needs to do her job. So dad, when the doctor comes, you're going to have her back. You're going to say, oh, our nurse was really great. She asked us if we wanted Pitocin, but we didn't, but she's cool. Okay. So the nurse walks away feeling, okay, now what do we give the doctor? Well, lots of respect and appreciation because, you know, they went to medical school and also- They need an emotional fluffer at all times, us doctors oh, do. Oh, also- yeah. <laughs> You're so good. You're so crazy. <laughs> but what does the doctor need? Well, what I've distilled it down to is he needs to know that you're satisfied with his care. Yeah. Yeah. And let's give him that. Let's tell him. We think you're a great doctor. We're really glad we came here to this hospital. And, you know, we love the fact that you're letting us make our decisions. <laughs> I mean, or something. this is actually like what you're talking about is social engineering. But actually, this little bit of charm school that you're teaching people who are attending birth, this is the information people need. Because if you go in with like a notarized birth plan and you like doing push-ups outside the room so that when you wear a cutoff tee, it shows how big and strong you are and all this other stuff, like... Uh, you come off as an asshole. Nobody wants to actually listen to an asshole. They're afraid of you first off. So what if you actually just charmed them a little bit and just said, Hey, I know your job's really tough. You've been doing great. I mean, all those things you just said, this is the type of basic human communication that actually gets you very far versus going in guns blazing, which as we know, coming into birth with a, in a state of fear and anxiety is actually also disruptive to your partner's birth. So come in on a unified front and realize that there are certain things in our control. Many are not in control, whether the doctors or you think you are, but what things can we control and how can we get these people on our team so that we can have the dreamy birth we want, even if we're in the hospital. That's, I think, where it's at. I love that you teach people that. Well, I call it collaboration. Okay. It's a bit of charm school. I know that too, but why can't we just collaborate? If I meet your needs, graciousness would say you would meet mine. Yeah. Okay. And that's why I would like to collaborate and, you know, appreciate the staff and give people what they need so that you would then get what you need out of graciousness. Well, you're doing great work. I just love you so much. I mean that from the bottom of my heart, I'm really, really happy that you're in the world and I hope we get to meet in person soon. Where are you located again? Like roughly? Roanoke, Virginia. Oh, you're in Virginia. I don't know why I thought you were in like Montana or something. Man, I'm even licensed in Virginia. Off planet, yeah. Right? Off yeah. planet. <laughs> I thought you like were up in that part of North America that seems to have broken off and is just floating out there in outer space. Okay. I think they call it Canada. Yeah. Wow. 
<laughs> Sorry, we're, we're, I'm offending everybody today on this. It's very refreshing to know somebody like you, Wapio. I hope we can be friends for a long time. I will be taking your training, and I will do my best to not be the obvious dude in the room. But if you'll have me, I will do it, and I will bring my whole heart into your work because I really, really want to be as close to you as I can. I just think I have so much to learn from you. I'm so grateful for your time. Where can people find you if they wanted to connect or maybe they're even inspired to do some work with you? Well, I created the Matrona. And the reason it's called the Matrona is because in Hispanic, and I love the Hispanic people, by the way, I have loved going to Mexico and Peru and places like that. They're so good to their children, you know, and loving. And I realized that there are two kinds of midwives in Peru. One of them is the more like the obstetra, parterra. Okay. She is a bit more clinically minded and so on. But then there's the other midwife who basically does, you know, sit in the prenatal care is all about stories. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she sits yeah. and knits in the room. And if the midwife is knitting, well, I guess everything's fine. Okay. And she's called the madrona. Uh-huh. So I've named our school, our house, our program after that midwife, the midwife who sits and knits and tells stories. La matrona. Si. <laughs> I love it. Well, so I believe it's La matrona on Instagram. Is that right? It's, well, we've anglicized it to the matrona. Oh, the matrona. Okay. What I will do is link everything in the show description, Wapio. And I thank you so much for your time today. I like really am in love with you. I just think you're just such a light. So thank you for your time. Well, you know what, Nathan, right back at you. You are so endearing to me, but I also respect your wisdom and your bravery and your integrity and your sense of rightness about what's happening in the world today. You're an open mind. You have an open heart. You have an open brain to to compute it all you know, and crystallize it into the things Mm. that you're doing and the things that you're saying. And I really appreciate that you're working for midwives and helping to allay the fear that they might have in order to practice the way women want them to. Yeah. So. Well, thank thank you. you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, I got to tell you, my life is amazing because I get to have conversations like this on a regular basis with some of the most incredibly important people in the birth community, and Wapio Barlett is no exception. You can find her again on Instagram at wapio underscore and underscore the matrona. You can find her website through a link on her Instagram page, but it's easy, thematrona, M-A-T-R-O-N-A.com. You'll find everything that Wapio and her team are offering. They will teach you to be among the best birth keepers, wisdom keepers in the world. And she's drawing from decades of experience doing this, not just attending births, but also mentoring people. And if you're out there considering becoming a birth worker in any capacity, I think that there's something to take from her course. She'll teach you the art of wisdom keeping. She'll teach you some homeopathic remedies. She'll teach you how to identify when things seem right and when you can go with your gut that things are going well. I mean, this is a comprehensive study, the experience of becoming a birth keeper. And the fact that the Matrona offers it all in one place, (sighs) thank goodness. (laughs) 
So go and check out Wapio's work. Wapio, thank you for being so gracious and giving me some of your time. Again, guys, if you want to support this podcast, if you're liking this, if you felt lighter after this conversation, if you felt inspired, please, please share the episode with your friends and family. Reach out to me if you have any questions, comments, concerns. If you haven't left a review, please go to iTunes or Spotify. Leave a five-star review. It takes so little time, but it does such a great deal of good in getting this podcast out to the masses by rising in the rankings. You can also support our sponsors. Full Well Fertility makes the best prenatal vitamin, fish oil, nerve tonic, men's virility vitamins on the market. They just do four items and they do them extremely well, better than anybody else. You can take advantage of 10% off by going to fullwellfertility.com, use code BELOVED10, and you will save some dollars. Organifi, my man Drew has put together the most incredible product lineup. Almost every one of his products includes functional mushrooms. All of the ingredients are always organic. They're glyphosate residue free. So you're going to keep your gut nice and strong. There's a lot of prebiotic and probiotic ingredients in many of their product line. I recommend their red juice, their green juice, and one of their lattes. I'm now pumpkin spice latte. It has turmeric and it has functional mushrooms and organic coconut milk and all these other ingredients. It's the perfect evening latte blended up with some whole fat coconut milk. You're going to just love it. They've got their new chocolate variety coming out here for the winter. Try everything. Everything they put together is just a godsend. If you want to try their stuff, go to Organifi. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash beloved, and you'll save 20% on everything in their store. This show was also made possible by Optimizers. My good friend Wade at Bioptimizers has put together some of the most spectacularly and responsibly made supplements that you'll find anywhere. Their magnesium breakthrough is made of seven distinct types of magnesium. It's going to help you get a nice, restful sleep, ease into the night, as opposed to sedating yourself with alcohol, etc. You can go to magbreakthrough.com slash holistic OBGYN, and you'll save some more dollars on their incredible magnesium breakthrough product. And for a limited time, they're going to throw in some extra freebies, masszymes, P3OM, HCL, et cetera, in order to make sure that your digestion, your microbiome and everything is supported so you can absorb all of the nutrients that you you just consumed from Organifi's green juice. And then last but not least, our newest sponsor, welcome to the family, BirthFit. BirthFit offers a wide range of pregnancy and postpartum specific lifestyle programming. They have this incredible community where you can meet other women who are going through this. Maybe even their partners are going to be involved. This is where fitness, education, and connection meet. You're going to get nervous system specifically supported general strength and conditioning programs, human movement foundation support, core and pelvic floor basics so that you can get back to peeing, pooping, and having sex the way that you remember before you gave birth. This is a comprehensive prenatal training program. You can go to birthfit.com, use code BELOVED, and you'll get one month free, your first month free. And then you're going to want to pay for this indefinitely thereafter to their B community, where you're going to meet all sorts of women who are going through the same things that you are. You're going to be able to share insights. They're going to bring in amazing speakers in order to improve your understanding of what's happening with your body and to get it back on track. Whether you're trying to conceive, you're currently pregnant, 
your postpartum, or even approaching menopause. You're going to get a wide range of advice there and hear from some of the best, most knowledgeable people in the space. So again, that's birthfit.com. Use code BELOVED. You'll get your first month in the B community completely free as a listener of the Holistic OBGYN podcast. Lastly, nothing you heard on the show is medical advice. If you want some medical advice, you can hire me, bring me onto your care team. I also collaborate with midwives. I serve as a prescriptive authority, a supervising physician role. I do so much in order to uplift the traditional wise woman midwifery care model. And I think that that's important for supporting the change that is needed within maternity care in the United States. If you want to find me, go to belovedholistics.com. On my shop there, by the way, you'll find discount codes for every brand that is aligned with me and that I want to support out there. You'll find everything from water structuring and filtration to Organifi to supplement companies to prenatal vitamins through Fullwell. You're going to get everything that I use. Blue light blocking glasses in order to further improve your sleep hygiene. You'll find everything there. You can also join my private association. That's sort of like joining Costco. Once you've got your membership for the year paid, now you can access all these great services that are available within my practice, Beloved Holistics. If you're a midwife, a birth educator, a health coach, a check professional, and you want to have a doctor to regularly consult with, I do all of the stuff in women's health. I do a lot of complex illness management. I'm also um, training in anthroposophic medicine. I've done biogeometry training. I've done Steamy Chick Institute's steam facilitator training. I'm working on their peristeam hydrotherapist training. I am still constantly learning new things, including a wide variety of functional medicine and lab testing in order to help people from preconception all the way through menopause live their most vital lives. You can find everything there at belovedholistics.com. I think I've talked enough. I really, really appreciate you guys. Share the episode. Send some love on Instagram. Reach out. I love meeting people who are listening to the show. And I will see you next week where you're going to be hearing from Emily Green. <laughs> there are very few people who meet Emily Green and don't feel like they want to be her best friend. The title of that episode is The Spirit of Your Baby is Waiting to Enter Your Womb. Emily is a honest-to-God, real-deal medium, and she found from a young age that not only can she communicate with spirits, but she has this tendency to communicate with the spirits of babies waiting for their mom and dad's sort of consent to enter the womb. And that comes through the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual space. That's what conscious conception is all about. I refer a lot of people to Emily so that she can work with them. You're going to love that episode. You're going to love, love, love Emily Green. Until then, I hope you enjoy the last few days of October. I'll be seeing you back here on the 2nd of November with Emily. But I'm going to bring my old catchphrase back. Do no harm, take no shit. And just be authentic, everybody. Much love.